0: Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here playing different roles this morning. It's The last time I think I led worship and preached at the same time was when I was 25 and I was a youth pastor. So it's fun uh, to do this. Pray for Terry and his family. They're on vacation. Uh, and we'll be back next week and we miss them. So please do keep them in your prayers as well. Uh, if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn, again, the hard part about that is, is we're going to go to a couple different places this morning as we come to... The last in our series on the fruit of the spirit and talk about self-control. And so we'll be looking at a number of different places and they're printed for you in your worship folder in the insert. They'll also be on the screen behind me. So it may just be easier for you to kind of follow along there and then locate in your scripture wherever you would like to. So let's read together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Beginning in verse uh, beginning in Galatians five, then moving on to 1 Corinthians nine and then to 1 Peter chapter five, reading together from God's word. But I say to you. Paul says to the Galatians, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. And then Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. to the church humble yourselves peter said therefore under god's mighty hand so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you <clears throat> be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seek, seeking someone to devour resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world <clears throat> after you've suffered a little while the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Now, this summer, we have been taking a spiritual inventory of our lives by looking at what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And we've been learning that it's not our talents, it's not our gifts, it's not our moral accomplishments that matter. What really matters is our heart character and how it's being changed. In other words, the most important thing in your life and in my life is not necessarily what it is we're doing, but the kind of people we're becoming in whatever it is we're doing. So we want you, and we hope you have taken this opportunity this summer as we've looked at these through the Spirit, to take a deep look at your heart and to say that if you've put your faith in Jesus... The Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit comes into your life and begins to change you from the inside out. And Paul says here, here's how you know. He says here in Galatians 5, is your heart being healed of its selfishness? Is there a joy and a peace that buoys your heart up against, you know, bad circumstances, no matter what happens in your life? Are you patient? You know, are you a good friend? Have you given your life to the to the just doing good? Do you possess like we talked about last week, the courage to confront sin, but also the compassion to do it gently. In other words, all of that to say, is Jesus teaching you to love? Because that's the that's the the crux of the matter. Are you more and more becoming a person who's figuring out how to love? And so you see, if you look there, if you've done that this summer, if you've taken spiritual inventory, and there's, you know, you found a prevailing despair instead of joy or anxiety instead of peace, I said prevailing, okay? Because we all, you know, everybody is anxious. But if there's this prevailing, you know, sense of despair and anxiety instead of peace and anger and resentment instead of patience, and if you're full of self-indulgence and anger and envy and broken relationships, then what Paul is saying is you you need to be careful because it could be evidence that the flesh and not the spirit is still in control of your life. And if you feel it's true of you, then you have to have a very important question you need to answer and that is do you know him because you see to become a christian and we here's what to become a christian means you turn away from all the things you're doing to try to make yourself holy and acceptable and righteous in god's sight and you trust jesus for forgiveness and righteousness you don't become a christian by walking down an aisle or signing a pledge card or or making a decision you know as as good as those things are it is a sovereign work of God in the heart. And the way you know it's happened to you is to look at this list of the Spirit's fruit and to inspect your life for it. So that was, that's what Paul's teaching us. Now, two things, by way, just for free as we kind of come into this this morning, and two things just to remind you of what Paul's saying here in Galatians chapter 5. And the first is just this, is that remember, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, if you look there, the fruit of the Spirit is, not the fruit of the Spirit are, The fruit of the spirit is singular. And so he means to teach us that all of these things go together. So it does not do to say, well, you know, I'm pretty patient, but that self-control stuff, you know, no way. I mean, or to say, you know, I'm pretty good over here. Not so good over here. Paul's saying they all go together. And so you're only as strong as your weakest link. It doesn't say to say, you know, I have courage, but I don't have compassion or I have compassion, but I don't have courage. They've got to all go together. And then secondly, just a second thing to think about, and that is that. What this means is, is we have a lot of work to do. And I want to say that because I'm afraid that there, you know, we could begin to think, you know, well, okay, if these heart characteristics can only be produced by the Spirit's work in my life, then that, that then, you know, I can just sit around and kind of wait for him to do it and be passive in the process. And Paul is saying to us, No, 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 no. We have great responsibility to intentionally and aggressively put ourselves in the way of God's working and to order our lives toward the goal of spiritual transformation. Because what we find this morning is one of the fruits of the Spirit unfortunately for some of us, is self-control. So that's what we need to talk about this morning, and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to talk about it under three headings. First, why do we need self-control? In other words, what's the larger story that we're a part of? Number two, what is self-control and what isn't it? And then thirdly, how do you get it? So why do we need it, what is it, what isn't it, how do you get it? Let's look at those three things this morning as we go through these passages together. First, starting with why do we need self-control? Uh, there's this sentence in one of John, and I don't know if you've read anything by John Eldridge. He's not the greatest theologian in the world, but I really do enjoy his books. And in one of his books, he has a statement that's really great. He writes, he says, man was not born into a sitcom or a soap opera. He was born into a world at war. This is not home improvement. It's saving Private Ryan. Now, like all great pastors and authors, he stole that. You know we do that, right? Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, and it's true of every great teacher. A great teacher is just somebody who can go find people smarter than him and bring those things to other people. Very few original thoughts. And it's true of John Eldridge. He stole it from C.S. Lewis, who wrote in Mere Christianity this. He says, Enemy occupied territory, that's what this world is. Lewis says Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great sabotage, excuse me, in a great campaign of sabotage. And what John Eldridge is picking up on is he's saying that's really what's going on in the world around us. And in 1 Thessalonians, in your assurance of pardon this morning, we're reminded that there's a mission, that we have a mission. Paul wants us to know, you know, in in these passages, Paul and Peter want us to know two things. First, that there is a mission, that we have a mission. And Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians. He says there's light. The light is taking over the darkness, that something big, really big is happening all around us, that Jesus is coming into the world and His death and resurrection have not... It's not that it's just made it possible for us to go to heaven when we die. Jesus coming into the world has set into motion a cosmic upheaval. You know, the renewal of all things. The coming of the kingdom of God into the world. It's set off a great clash between the forces of good and evil that is playing out around us whether we have eyes to see or not. And so John (laughs) Eldridge. Brother Curtly, I think, writes later in the same book, he writes, Christianity is not a religion about going to Sunday school, potluck suppers, being nice, holding car washes, sending our secondhand clothes off to Mexico, as good as those things may be. This is a world at war. Something large and immensely dangerous is unfolding all around us. I think that's good. And the analogy Paul uses in 1 Corinthians nine bears this out. He tells us that Christianity is like running a race. You see that there? 1 Corinthians nine and the Greek word. There's a Greek word that really is the word from which our word is derived. Our word stadium, the place where the the games are held, the Olympic games or he's talking about there being a great contest that we're I've been sick and singing and preaching this morning is killing my voice. There's a great there's a great contest into which we are called. Uh, And then then again in verse 25 there in 1 Corinthians 9, he he uses the word athlete. And the Greek word there for athlete, it's a hard word to translate, and so all the translations differ. But I love it because it really is the Greek word agona. And does that sound familiar to any English words you might know? Agona, from which we get agony. And really what it means, it means to wrestle, or if you prefer, to wrestle against, you know the difference between those two things, right? Do I need to explain that Polk County lingo right there? Wrestling and wrestling, you know, that, that you're that you are to wrestle and struggle against great adversity or to strive against an adversary. So you see, Paul is casting Christianity as a race we must run or Chris uh, Nelson and Adrian or a grappling match that we must win. Adrian's into grappling. Uh, that whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, we are set right in the middle of a great battle and neutrality is not an option. That we are in a contest that demands that every part of our life come into sync with the goal of winning the race. That there's a mission that Jesus has given to us. And the mission is to take the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation and people on earth and to not stop until every ear has heard and every knee bows to him. The mission is to go into our city and find where sin and death and ruin exist and to bring them into the, you know, bring the kingdom of God to bear upon those situations and to fight against evil. So there's a mission. Paul says we have a mission. But then 1 Peter, the reason I picked that passage is because it's so clear that not only do we have a mission, but here's where it gets really omnius we have an enemy. We not only have a mission, we have an enemy. And Peter is so much more explicit. He says we have an adversary, an opponent, a powerful spiritual being that strives against us. And the scripture calls him Satan or the devil. We believe, you know, somebody asked C.S. Lewis one time, I Amir, mean, are you t- are you telling me you really believe in a in a devil with pointy, you know, with pointy horns?'" And he says, "Well, I don't know what he looks like, but if you want to know what he looks like, I'm sure you know that can be arranged." You know, I we don't, but we believe in a spiritual, strong spiritual force called Satan. Now, he may not have pointy horns. Probably, he's very beautiful because the Scripture calls him an angel of light. He was. The greatest of all of God's angels, and he became proud and was not content to serve God. He wanted God's throne instead, and so he, 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 he gathered angel, other angels with him to go against God in rebellion, and there was a great war in heaven, and God and the forces of, of good cast him down to earth and defeated him in battle. And we're told, Peter tells us that he now fights against the church because he hates God, And Peter calls him a fierce lion that roars and prowls and seeks to devour us. And so a couple of things there. Peter means to tell us that he's fierce and powerful. He means to tell us that he's cunning. Lions are cunning. They hide. They, you know, they sneak up on their prey. And thirdly, he means to tell us that he is actively pursuing us. Now, you may not be looking for him, but he is looking for you. And so I just want to ask you this morning, do you live like that? Mothers and fathers, do you pray for your children as if there's a prowling lion waiting to devour them? Do you live like that? Um, There's a great, by way of illustration, the early Christians really understood this. In early Christian days, and this is great, and I'm of the opinion that we ought to start doing this. When we baptize, although, you know, babies can do it, obviously, but people, you know, older people could. But when they used to baptize people in the early days of Christianity, um, the bishop would breathe into the faces of the candidates to indicate the coming of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Then the sign of the cross would be made over the water, setting it aside as God's, you know, as an instrument of, of, of you know, God's special agent, you know got to do God's bidding, the candidate would then take off his clothes. I don't know if it means they're naked or not, but, you know, at least, you know, something as a symbol of putting off the new man, he would walk into the water. And then there was a ritual of renunciation. And in the right, the minister would ask, do you reject the devil and all of his work? And the candidate, here's what the candidate who was going to be baptized would do. He would reply with a strong, I do. He would turn to the West, which they understood to be the place where evil came from. And he would spit in the face of the devil. And then they would dunk him. I think that's awesome. Because they understood something that you and I don't. They understood that there are very real spiritual powers and forces that are against us. And part of what it means to become a Christian is, is Jesus greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And yet it calls us to a contest with these spiritual forces for the sake of the gospel in all the earth, we have a mission and we have an enemy. And so what should that call out of us? What should that do? What kind of life should the realities that Paul and Peter are talking to us about here? What should it call out of us? In Paul's word, both in Galatians chapter five and in first Corinthians nine, is this word self control. So that's why we need it. But what what is self control? If you look there in first Corinthians nine, twenty five, <clears throat> Paul says, if I can find it, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The Greek literally there is panta egokratia, panta, all things, no exceptions, all, everything you could think of, panta, egokratia is the Greek word, which, which is the word self-control ego. Anybody know? Okay. Ego, you with me? Self, me, I. Kratia is a word that means rule or authority or control. So it literally means I rule myself, I control myself in all things. It means to be able to master your desires, to order every part, <clears throat> to order every part of your life toward a certain goal. Now look down; it gets even better. In, in verse twenty-seven, Paul says, "I beat my body and make it my slave." And that word, that word there is really tricky, too. And it it really what it literally means is it means to wear down resistance. It's the word that that is used by Jesus in Luke 18, where he talks about a woman who who, and there's a judge and she needs a judgment from the judge. And the way she goes about gets and gets it is she just keeps going back over and over and over again. And she drives this judge crazy until he finally says, you know what? Fine, you can have what you want. Just get out of my face. That's what it, it means to wear down resistance you know, in order to be faithful and effective and reach the goal. So what Paul's saying is, is you have to intentionally be wearing down the resistance in your life against holiness, the habits and the practices that lead to sin. You have to go after these things. You Can't just be laissez-faire about them. You have to live on purpose. You have to attack for the sake of faithfulness and love. And so self-control Starts with a goal or a desire and a dream, and it's the ability to say yes to the things that will help you get to that goal or that desire or that dream, and say no to the things that will prevent you from getting there. And you see this all the time, don't you, in our culture, okay? You know, I don't, I, I have no idea where this came from, but it is now very fashionable to run, you know, run half marathons and marathons. I think those people are crazy personally, but I admire them greatly. Um, you know, but if you decide to run a marathon, here's what I've learned, because <clears throat> enough of my friends have done it. You you have to, and if you and somebody can give me an amen if you've ever done it. You know, you have to order all the other parts of your life to reach that goal. So you begin. You know, there's a guy on Facebook last night who said, went to bed, ate my spaghetti, 20 mile run tomorrow. Woohoo! I said, you're nuts. 20 mile run? Yay! I'm like, oh my gosh, 20 mile Never mind. I will get bored. It's like four hours of running. I don't have enough songs on my iPod for that. Do you know what I'm saying, though? So you you begin a training schedule. You start with a few miles. You work up to running, you know, 20 miles on a Sunday. You know, you have to watch what you eat. You have to make sure you get plenty of sleep. It it takes over your life. Leah, can I get an amen? Yeah. It takes over your life. Every other decision is now in submission to the goal of running a half marathon or a marathon. Or, you know, okay, if you're overweight like me and you decide, okay, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. Newsflash! It doesn't just happen. Thanks, Canaan, for laughing. My son's laughing at me now. He knows this, right? You have to order your schedule. You have to change your habits. You have to make time to go to the gym. You have to get enough—you know—to get enough to exercise. You have to begin to eat—you know—the right kinds of food and the right amount of food, and you know—in the right time of the day. You have to order your entire life. You have to say no to eating out and yes to—you know—you. The, it takes over your life. It's anything. Now, with few exceptions, as I've noted here, this is something that our culture knows little to nothing about because in many ways we are a culture that is completely out of control. Our spending's out of control. I look some of these things up. We live beyond our means and we buy more than we need or nicer than we need to make an impression. 43% of American families spend more money every month than they earn. The average American family has $8,000 in credit card debt alone. 10,000 homes, get this, 10,000 homes were foreclosed on in Polk County in 2008. You know, our schedules are out of control. We're overworked and overscheduled and sleep deprived. Our appetites are out of control. We don't eat to live. We live to eat and we don't eat things that are good for us, but things that taste good. 63% of Americans are overweight, and 35 to 40 are technically obese. Our sexual desires are out of control. Just think about the pornography industry. I was going to do some research, but then I realized if I type pornography in Google, it's going to send a notification to my wife, and I'm going to be in big trouble. So I didn't do any of the research. You can do that yourself. I have one of those shepherd eyes or whatever, covenant eyes things on my computer. We can't control our tempers or our tongues or our thoughts. And what's happened is is it's created a culture of addicts. We are a culture of addicts completely, completely out of control. And so the typical way that people try to stop doing things they don't want to do, typically the way we try to get people to stop doing things that they shouldn't be doing or to start doing positive things is to yell at them and to say, stop it! There's a problem with that. It doesn't work. And there's a deeper problem than that, and that is that it's a false understanding of what self-control really is. Because you see, the secret of self-control is not willpower it's not the will over the emotions or the feelings you know but that's what just say no just do it that's stoicism just take your take your will and clamp down on the emotions but that you see that's not how you do it self-control doesn't come from stuffing your feelings it's the exact opposite actually it comes from feeling strongly and passionately but for the right things and so think about it. let's go back to the runner okay and if 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 you're trying to if you're a runner and you're training for the Olympics, if you eat chocolate cake every day, you'll probably never be a world class athlete. Would everybody agree with that? Maybe. I don't know. But let's just assume. Okay, so how is it that the athlete can say no to chocolate cake? Is it because they don't want the chocolate cake? Of course not. Everybody wants chocolate cake. See, they want to eat it, but they're able to say no. Why? Because they want something more. They want what Paul calls in these verses the prize, the wreath. That's what we're talking about. Self-control is not an exercise of the will over the emotions. It's an exercise of the heart. You set your heart on something, and whatever that something is, whatever the greatest passion and joy of your life is, that's the thing that will then order all the other parts of your life. So self-control means... You're controlled by your deepest passion and joy, and it begins to dominate your life in order in order, all of the different parts and to bring everything in submission to it. So the athlete, the greatest joy and passion is to be a world-class athlete. And so it's not that they don't want the chocolate cake, it's that they, they want this more. So all their other desires are ordered. Now, there's a great story in the Bible about this. And back in Genesis, uh, Abraham's grandson Jacob fell in love with a girl named Rachel. And he went to Rachel's father and he said, I want to marry her. And the father, because he was just as conniving as Jacob was, says, sure, work for me for seven years. Seven years you work for me and I'll give her to be your daughter. Now, I don't know. Most guys, thank you, but no thank you. But he was so enamored. He was She was such a beauty and such a joy to him that he worked for seven years. And not only that, but the Bible says... That that although he worked and toiled and got up every day and did his duties every day for seven years, because he loved her so much, it felt like a few days to him. Will you hear that? His love, she was such a beauty, she was such a joy to him, that all the other parts of his life just fell into place. And seven years of labor felt just like a few days. So you see, self control is not a matter of the will, but of the heart. It's setting the heart on the right thing. And that orders all the other feelings and all the other ones. And so if we could define self-control, really self-control, real self-control, is the ability to choose the most important thing over the urgent thing. The ability to choose the most important thing over the urgent thing. So you see, that's why we need it, and that's what it is. But how do you get it? And that's where we've got to finish this morning before we come to the Lord's table. How do you get it? How is it that 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 the Spirit begins to produce this in us? You see, again, it's simply not enough to say try hard because it assumes that self-control is a matter of the will and not a matter of worship. But what Paul says very clearly, if you look there in verse 25 again, is that the athlete exercises self-control in all things, in order to, that's a purpose clause, for this purpose, to gain a wreath, a prize, a reward, a glory. And so what's the prize? Let me just ask you, so you can ask this question of your own heart. What is the thing you've set your heart on? What is the thing in your life that orders everything else in your life and brings self-control in all things? Because you see, if you find yourself having a hard time with self-control, as I do, it's probably because you've taken a good thing and made it an ultimate thing. And instead of desiring the most important thing the most, we begin to desire lesser things more than we should. And the Bible very clearly calls that idolatry. There's a word in the New Testament. It's the word epithumia. It means over desire. In other words, what the flesh, what the part of you that wants to be God rather than to serve God, that part of your heart that is intolerant of living in submission to the Lord and wants the throne just like Satan did way back at the beginning before the beginning of time what the flesh does is it latches on to things that are of relative importance and it makes them things of ultimate importance and it creates desires in you that are over desires over desires for food and so you eat more food than you need an over desire for security an over desire for for sexual pleasure, an over-desire for whatever it may be. And these over-desires create slavery. See, if anything other than God becomes your ultimate object of beauty and joy, it will give you self-control in some areas, but not in all things. And in a real way, it it creates slavery. So take a couple of things. Just really quick, let's just go through just a couple of examples. Career success, okay? So those of you out there, who that's apply to, like me, you know, you work too much, you stay mentally and physically exhausted because, you know, of, of a desire for career success, you sacrifice relationships, and in some cases, even your marriages, or you move away from family and friends to chase, to chase it, and you end up lonely, and what's going on with all of that? What's happening there? What's happening is, is you've taken career let me let me say this right you've taken career and made it number one when it should be number three or number four and so everything else in your life is out of order and so what do you do what do you do you have to realize that you've made career success your greatest joy and so you think i've got to do this i'm a nobody i'm a nobody if i don't do this you know i'm no i'm i'm a nobody if i'm not good at my career and it's become too important so there's there's your life's out of order or teenagers You know, the desire to be popular in the same way that girls starve themselves and guys shoot up with you know, with steroids and do whatever they have to to get in because you're only somebody when you're in. There's an over-desire for acceptance. It happens all the time. It, it's the reason we're overcommitted. It's the reason we have a hard time saying no because, you know, people's approval, we've made people's approval our prize. It's number one when it should be number two or number three or maybe even number ten. And so your life's completely out of control. So what do we do? If you look down at the bottom of your page, it's really small down there, but there's a quote by Thomas Chalmers, and it's such a great quote. It's so helpful for understanding what we're talking about. I want to just read it to you, and I want, I want then I want to just say a couple things about it, and then we're done. Thomas Chalmers, who is a Puritan writer, he, he talks about the way the heart works, and it's very clear in the way he presents it here, but I want you just to see what he says there at the bottom of your outline. He says, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least it is very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning or by the force of mental determination, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and lose its power entirely as the reigning affection in the mind. We only cease to be the slave of one appetite because another has brought it into subordination, there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object of ultimate beauty can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. Now listen to this phrase: the only way to, disp- to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Now, what's what's he saying? You see, there's only one way you can root out. If you, if there's something other than the most important thing you've given your heart to, there's only one way to root it out. It, there's got to come into your life a new affection, a greater joy in the greatest thing, God Himself, that has an expulsive power to throw out of your life all the things you've given your heart to. And so, let's look at First Corinthians nine one more time and see what Paul's, what Paul's greatest joy was, what Paul's crown and wreath was. And if you look back. At verses 22 and 23, he says to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might serve, save some. And here in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. Now, look there, Paul says Paul's goal, Paul's greatest joy was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel is that despite all of your efforts, despite all the work you might do, Because of Jesus' work alone, you are endlessly, infallibly, and unconditionally delighted in by God, your Heavenly Father. It's not something you've achieved for yourself. It's not something you can ever become disqualified for. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then His righteousness becomes yours and your sin is put on Him. And the result is that you are endlessly, infallibly, and unconditionally delighted in by God. And if your heart is set on that... Like Paul's was, more than anything else, it will bring self-control in all things. And if you set your heart on anything else, there's always the threat that you might lose it. And so the radical insecurity that you live with there you know causes you to to to, to do whatever you have to do to keep and to maintain the thing your heart needs the most. And and you hold tightly with firm grip on it, and then what happens is, is you may have control on this little area of your life, but everything else in your life is spinning out of control, but not with the gospel. See That's not the gospel. In the gospel, your greatest joy is given to you and there's no threat of it ever being taken away. And Paul says, I do this for the sake of the gospel. And then there's a second part to what he says. He says, sharing in its blessings. You see that in verse 23? That I may share with them in its blessings. And so the the passion of Paul's life was not only his exaltation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it was that he would share the blessing of that gospel with other people. Paul had become completely outward focused, away from himself. There was a time when he was a Pharisee where, he, where he, he exhibited self-control so he could achieve and personally climb the ladder of success, but it didn't work. And what happens is, is when you and I, when we make our own self-interest and our, our own selves, our own glory the thing we're aiming at, we won't have self-control. It only comes when you rest securely in the gospel and then begin to live for other people. So Paul's self-control was motivated... By love. He wanted to be able to share the blessings of the gospel. He wanted to see people come to faith in Jesus. And in the places where your life is out of control, you need a greater affection. It's a worship issue. You need to see the beauty of Jesus and have his beauty eclipse the beauty of the things you've given your heart to, like money or success or comfort or people's approval. And it even worked this way in Jesus' heart. And just to close, I want to say, there's a great place in Hebrews Chapter 12, where we're told that Jesus endured the cross. He, he he obeyed and submitted himself to everything his father had for him and, and, and even endured the cross, despising its shame. And, and the writer of Hebrews tells us why he did it. And there's this little phrase, he said, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, have you ever thought what was that joy? What was Jesus' joy? that was set before him, that gave him the self-control, the self-rule to even endure the cross. Was it his father? Well, no, it couldn't have been because he already had his father. I mean, was it heaven? No, it couldn't have been heaven because he already, he already had heaven. There was only one thing that Jesus did not have that he wanted more than anything else, and it was his joy, the joy and the beauty of his heart that pushed him towards the cross, and that one thing was You. You are his Rachel. You are his joy. And so you see, when you see him enduring because you are his beauty and delight, you will be able to endure because he will become your beauty and delight. And the thought and the knowledge that he loved you like that will cause you to love him like that. And the thought that he made you his beauty will make him your beauty. And the self-control that he had because you were the passion of his life, will bring the self-control into your life because he will become the passion of your life. You see, the secret of self-control is not willpower. It's joy power. It's gospel power. It's a matter of worship. We need to see him in all of his beauty, giving himself for our sake. And that's the very thing that brings the power into our lives, to bring the self-control Paul talks about. And so what a great opportunity this morning to come to his table um, to do just that. And so let's pray. As Jonathan comes to lead us, Heavenly Father, we are a people who are in desperate need of self-control. Would you come and do this work in us? We pray it in your name. Amen. I don't know if it'll fit down there.
1: say the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, And so I'd invite you to to stand with me. Uh, And I would ask you, uh, Christian, in an age of unbelief, what do you believe? Let's say it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty. seated. Uh, before we do get started, um, is there anybody, can I get a volunteer to Drew's doing several things and I'm normally on the PowerPoint and my wife normally subs for me and my wife's not here. So Lauren will sub for me. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, just to kind of guide us through our communion songs and so forth. Uh, as we come to the table, uh, it's amazing what we have just heard. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to say, as we read First Peter five this morning, uh, where Peter says, "Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm." strengthen and establish you. Uh, Jesus was presented, as we've just heard, uh, with many things, many other desires uh, that could have taken the place of his one singular, most powerful desire in his heart, which was to do the will of his father, which was to gain the joy that was set before him, which was his people. Uh, And Jesus resisted the devil. You'll recall in the desert, being tempted 40 days, he was offered all kinds of other things to put his self-control out of order. Food. uh, Remember Paul said every athlete exercises self-control because he wants the prize. Jesus was starving and he wanted food and yet he resisted the devil's temptation for food. The devil offered him power, and he resisted the devil's offer of power because his joy mattered more to him. His joy had gripped his heart more than those things. We had gripped his heart more than those things. And ultimately, it would lead him here uh, to the supper where he would offer his body broken and his blood shed. And a few days later, he would graphically show his disciples that reality all for the joy set before him Uh, he calls us to the same kind of lifestyle Uh, and so as we come to take the supper this morning uh, let's keep in mind everything that we've just heard powerful powerful stuff if we can internalize it and begin to live it out Uh, that it is not a matter of our will but it is a worship issue. It is a, it, it, it's a reality of worship in our lives and what we worship. And for Jesus, it was His Father and it would lead Him to uh, this table. So on the night He was betrayed, uh, Jesus took bread. Uh, when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, This is My body, which is given for you. Uh, Whenever you eat it, whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. Now Jesus was... Even in the last supper, a picture of substitution, a picture of the exchange that his body would be broken so that ours might be made whole. All who have faith in him might be made whole. His blood was shed in the place of our blood so that our blood, the blood that courses through our veins might be coursing through our veins to the glory of the Father. And that our goal might be his glory just as it was Jesus' goal. So I'd invite our our servers, I think it's uh, uh, Rick and Connie and Ron and Kim, to come forward. Uh, The way we do this is there are servers down at the end of this aisle and servers down at the end of this aisle. Uh, They'll each have uh, part of the loaf and a tray of uh, the uh, juice. If you would take a piece of bread and uh, take a cup and return to your seat, and then we'll all take together uh, in turn the uh, bread and the cup. So please come as you feel led.